Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This week we are publishing an episode that just was released on our other podcast, the Biblical World Podcast, and it's a Halloween special about death and tombs in ancient Israel. So I think you'll find it very interesting. This is with Matt Suriano. Also, before I lose you here in the intro, I want to mention that if you're going to be at SBL AAR in San Antonio, we have a live event with Dr. Vince Bantu talking about his book, A Multitude of All Peoples, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. And that's going to be on November 22nd. That's a Monday night at 8 p.m. at the Little Rhine Prost House in san antonio we've got information on our website if you go to onscript.study forward slash events you'll find out about that there so hope to see some of you there you can um, register at our website there's a link to the eventbrite where you can sign up for this free event there's going to be free food there and time to connect with each other okay look forward to that and enjoy this episode Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch bringing you a very special Halloween OnCrypt Biblical World episode. That's right, OnCrypt. Uh, thank you to David Schroeder for giving us the idea in a tweet to do an OnCrypt episode. He said, OnScript podcast, please tell me you will be publishing a Halloween special called OnCrypt, talking about the most recent archaeological advances in the study of ossuaries. Well, this is pretty much dealing with that. So this is for you, David. So in this episode, we have Matt Suriano, who knows a lot about death and burial in ancient Israel. And he's going to be talking with Kyle and Chris about his work. So I hope you enjoy this and happy Halloween, everyone. Uh, welcome back to OnScript Biblical World Podcast, or should I say OnCrypt Biblical World Podcast for this uh, special episode where we're joined by uh, our good friend, uh, professor at the University of Maryland, uh, Matthew Soriano. Uh, Kyle's with me today, and Kyle, you excited about what, what we're going to talk about with Matt? Oh, I am so excited. It is going to be spooky and spectacular. It's going to be so frightening and blood-curdling and death-dealing and wonderful. <laughs> um, well, uh, that's, uh, that's one way to put it. Uh, so it was my I, Transylvanian accent. I, I liked good. it. It was, it's, it was, it's, it's it Northern Transylvanian. So people might not have recognized it. Yeah. But. You know, it's, it's a different, it's a different dialect. It's Transylvanian. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I like it. So, um, in any case, thanks for that. And we have Matt Suriano. Um, welcome Matt. Thank you. Good to be here. Today, Matt is going to talk to us about one of his favorite topics, Death in the Old Testament or death in the Hebrew Bible. Matt has written widely on this subject, both in his dissertation from UCLA, but also uh, in terms of a, of a book that he's published based upon his dissertation, and more recently, a book about death or the history of death in the Hebrew Bible. 
As I said, Matt is a, is a good friend of both of ours. I've dug for many seasons with Matt at uh, Tel Borna. We've spent many an hour in the evening telling jokes and experiencing the wonders of an excavation project. And so it's such a fun conversation, um, such a good opportunity to have a conversation with, with Matt. And in this discussion, we, we kind of jump right into it as Matt is describing his long-term project of uh, death in the Hebrew Bible, but also some very interesting projects associated with new work that he's doing in terms of mortuary inscriptions in and around uh, Jerusalem and, and throughout Judah, but also this other project, which he's working on at Silwan. So we hope you enjoy this episode as we delve into death in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and as I said before, it is a special episode called On Crypt, special for Halloween, of course. While I was writing my the book that got published in 2018, A History of Death in the Hebrew Bible, I shared uh, an early draft of the manuscript with a colleague of mine, Jacqueline Weintraub. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we, share, we share stuff back and forth all the time. And um, Jackie uh, contacted me and she said, you know, we should put together a volume on funerary inscriptions in Hebrew and Aramaic. Because I had an entire chapter that was just basically translation. And, you know, it, it, it really kind of detracted from the flow of the narrative. Um, but the idea of extracting that material, and putting it in a separate volume where I could deal with them in a more thorough and robust manner, you know, not just translate them, but also write introductions to each inscription, line commentaries, uh, and, and work with with, with uh you know, working with with Professor Weintraub, who's who's a skilled philologist, and it's really her strong suit. As opposed to me, I'm, I'm more of a an epigrapher, um, an archaeologist. At least that's how I approach these uh, these artifacts. So we started working on this project, and and I got in contact with um, the editor of the Writings in the Ancient World series um, for the Society of Biblical Literature's monograph series. W.A.W., which is very well known. And I know the editor, uh, um, Professor Ted Lewis over at Johns Hopkins, because, you know, I, 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 I'm, I frequently go there to use their library 20 minutes from my house. So I mentioned it to him and it was almost an immediate yes, you know, please do this. This is something, uh-huh. a project that we would welcome. And so my Jackie and I have been working on this and we're almost finished with it. The main holdup is that we haven't been able to travel to, to go to any of the museums where the artifacts are collected. I mean, I, we've both seen them in the museums, mm-hmm. but we, we, <clears throat> there's a difference between just going and looking at something in a glass cabinet right. and actually going to the museum and working directly with it. So um, we were hoping, pre-COVID, we were hoping to accomplish this in 2020. And now, you know, the world is a completely different place. Yeah. Um, okay. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so, so we're hoping in. Uh, I'm hoping that next 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 year I'll be able to do this. Go to the British Museum uh, to work on the funerary inscriptions there, which would be it would be a small volume because it would it would only be focused on Iron Age inscriptions, mm-hmm. with maybe one exception. We we, we might include the Uzziah plaque, um, nice Aramaic and late Hellenistic, early Roman in date. But otherwise, everything would be thing, things such as the Kirbet al-Kom inscription, 
we would include catechinome, the silver amulets, because they were found in a funerary context. And importantly, the royal steward inscriptions, plural, because there's two of them that came from the same tomb. But what a, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Silwan, that 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 area of of of, of Jerusalem, the village of Silwan, there are all there are a lot of um, tombs that date back to the Iron Age. We refer to it as the Silwan Necropolis, and there are actually a collection of inscriptions. So the royal steward inscription was not an isolated discovery. Um, there were two inscriptions on the tomb of uh, the tomb of the royal 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 steward, which is. Um, has since been converted into a house. So it's the lower lower portion of a, of a domestic structure that was built above it anywhere from 500 to 1,000 years ago. And uh, right next to it, there's another similar tomb that, that still has an inscription on it um, that's almost identical in, in its formulaic style to the royal steward inscription, the main one. And then there's the, what is known as the Tomb of Pharaoh's Daughter, which is just outside of Silwan, so it's visible. It's the one tomb that's visible. And you can still see it in a relatively unaltered shape, although I think the, the roof was probably quarried away in antiquity. And that also has the remains of a Hebrew inscription, although it's only a, a letter and a half, but it's enough to reconstruct the word aurora, which means curse or cursed, which is, you know, Standard vocabulary for, for funerary inscriptions. So as we were working on this volume, this monograph, I became really very much interested in the context of writing because here we have inscriptions, and yeah, you know, two of them are, are in a museum on display. So they're decontextualized. And that I mean that's that's the state of most inscriptions that we that we work with, um, you know, whether they're cuneiform or alphabetic text, you know, written in. Hebrew, Phoenician, or Aramaic, we, we're, we're trained to read things in isolation from their context. And here we have monumental writing, um, and we know exactly where it comes from, but it's but nobody's ever really done any sort of study of the, uh, the inscriptions in, in context, because the context is difficult. Um, it's not easy to find where the royal steward uh, tomb is located today. It's, it's <clears throat> tucked away inside the, uh, the neighborhood of Silwan. Um, it's in East Jerusalem, and there are political dimensions to the study of inscriptions or the study of antiquities there in general. And there's a lot of, you know, um, the politics, you know, Silwan today is in the news quite frequently because of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So there, there are all kinds of reasons for why people haven't gone into that part of Jerusalem and studied the, the context of, of, of writing. Um, but I think added to that is just there's a, an inherent bias in the way that philologists and epigraphers work. It's a bias that, or maybe it's not a bias, but it's a blind spot with regards to, uh, to context. And so I started working on this project and uh, I, I, got in, I got in contact with um, uh, people in the School of Architecture here at the University of Maryland. So We've been engaged in an online initiative, so we're, we, we haven't been able to travel to Jerusalem. We're, we're doing kind of a preliminary study in which we're trying to map out and um, reconstruct the monuments in the Silwan necropolis in the, in, the, in, the eighth, or in the Iron Age, in the 8th to the 6th century, um, in order to get a better sense of the, the, the visualize, you might say, the writings. 
And that's the project that I'm working on now. I know I have nothing to show you for that. And the, I will say that the research that Chris and I have been doing of historic photographs from the 19th century of Silwan has, is, is directly linked to that project. And so that's where, that's where we've made the most progress, I would say. Um, and those photographs we're hoping, I'm, I've been archiving them because I'm working with an archaeologist who does ArcGIS work. And we're hoping to use photogrammetry, use those photographs to reconstruct the uh, historic landscape of the Mount of Olives prior to, say, all of the urban development that we see there that obscure, obscures and hides a lot of the, the monumental features of the Silwan necropolis. And, and why I think it's important uh, is because within Silwan, within that area on the Mount of Olives, the area is immediately across the Kidron Valley from the city of David. You know, so, so opposite the the political core, the heart of the kingdom of Judah you know, during the late Judean monarchy. So it's prime real estate. And, you know, so only the elite would have been buried there. And, and it's displayed in the, in the features of that cemetery. The cemetery um, has elaborately constructed tombs, tombs that are built for either individuals or a single generation. I use the term single generation as opposed to communal or multi-generation because the tombs, for, for one thing, none of them have repositories, which are a key feature of Iron Age tombs. That, that is, when we find tombs in, in the kingdom of Judah, they're, they're typically underground. They're almost always underground. They're either augmented caves, known as loculus tombs, or they're, um, construct, they're rock-cut chamber tombs that we refer to as the Judean or Judahite rock-cut bench tomb. So what we see, so Matt, just to jump in for a second. So what we see is a, a real distinction then between the the burials or the tombs cut in Silwan versus even say something like Ketafanoam, which is more traditional, um, absolutely, a kind of extended family, if you will, type of tomb that you're talking about. And 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 that's that's a that's an important um, comparison to make because you know elsewhere in Jerusalem during the late Judean monarchy at Ketafanoam, as well as north of the city at what and on the grounds of what is today Saint Etienne, um, we have these massive tomb complexes that are richly decorated and very, very well constructed, but they're built on the pattern of the traditional Ju Judahite bench tomb. They're chamber tombs that have multiple benches and they have repositories. And so what this means is that an extended family can use, use that tomb over a long period of time for multiple generations. You know, you have um, a family where, you know, let's say, the grandparents die over a course of a year. You can place both of them inside the chamber because there are multiple benches. When you need to reuse the space of that tomb, you can send somebody in to clear the bones off the bench, but you're not removing them from the tomb. You're just simply restoring them elsewhere inside the same tomb so that over time, you'll have great-grandparents, grandparents, ch children, everyone in the family can be buried, can be um, reunited inside the communal setting of the, the bench tomb or the Loculus cave tomb, and this this is the main sense of um, of Judahite mortuary culture that we see during the Iron Age. And yeah, you can make the argument that it's mostly reflective of the elite culture, and that's that's true. Unfortunately, we don't really have any data on how the non-elite buried, other than references in the Bible to the poor being buried in pits. But even there, I would say those pits were probably communal. You know, so these are cyst, cyst tombs. I, exactly how that work, works, I, I don't know. 
But you know, there is some variation in terms of the uh, the status of these um, of these bench tombs. Some are very well made; others are are not as um, finely crafted, and that might represent maybe different levels on the socioeconomic scale. But either way, you know, the ideal that's preserved is being reunited with with dead kin um, inside this, the setting of the tomb, and the tombs reflect multiple generations. But we but we see the exact opposite in, in the Silwan necropolis, because in the Silwan necropolis, they're not communal. We don't have repositories. They're built for one or two people. So the tomb of the royal steward mentions that the only person buried there is the royal steward, whose name is lost, and his concubine or slave wife or maidservant, however you want to translate the word, uh, you know, based on the word, the use of the word ama in the covenant code in the book of Exodus, which very clearly defines that this is a young woman who's sold as a slave to another man to be his wife. I think Avigad's translation of slave wife works well there, but I mean, she was probably a high ranking member of society due to the fact that she, her spouse was the royal steward. And it's possible that her name was mentioned in the second inscription. But, you know, I, I mentioned all that to say this, there are married couples. There's evidence that couples would be buried we have, it, there's indication inside the, the, the architecture of the tomb of the royal steward that there, were, there, were, there was space for two burials, or there are two benches. But we have other tombs that have benches side by side, and so on. And so you could say that these aren't necessarily individual burials. Most of them are, but not all of them are. But even the ones that aren't for individuals, but for couples, they still represent a single generation. And and so what we have in in that part of Jerusalem in the late monarchy is a phenomenon which the elite are building um, unusual tombs for themselves that kind of go against the grain of society, uh, and it probably it's probably linked to the expansion of the city, the growing power of uh, Jerusalem as a political and cultural center, and uh, and it's most likely reflected in, for example, Isaiah chapter twenty two. And the critique, the prophet's critique of a royal steward named Shebna, whether whether or not he's the person whose inscription now you know exists in the uh, collection of the British Museum, is, is difficult to say. But what, what I would say is this: among these elite tombs that we find in Silwan, there are at least four. There may have been as many as five that are above ground, so they're not just single generation tombs. They're, a, they're visible, okay? So they're not caves, they're not subterranean. They, they could be seen. And they were, they're created by carving large chambers out of bedrock. I mean, these are six meter by six meter generally. I mean, that's, those are the dimensions of the tomb of the, uh, tomb of the so-called tomb of Pharaoh's daughter. These are large structures that were intended to be seen. And unlike most funerary inscriptions, which were inside the chamber of the tomb, these had writing outside, you know, right above the entrance to each tomb, warning people, de de declaring who was buried there, claiming it as their property, and warning people against um, entering the tomb. And so <clears throat> we have something that's absolutely unique in Judean or Judahite mortuary culture during the Iron Age in the fact that we have above ground monolithic tombs in Jerusalem that date to the Iron Age. 
I would even go as far to say that these are unique throughout the Southern Levant during the Iron Age, because I, I don't know of any other examples of, of, of such things, um, <clears throat> you know, in, in Phoenician culture or Aramaean culture. And so, you know, these are pretty spectacular. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, Matt, there's so many points that uh, I'd like to, to go on. I'm going to try to remember and, and say a few of them. But one thing, as you, as you were talking, something I would not thought about before is you mentioned how, um, you know, most of, most of the Judahites and I would assume also uh, Israelites and it's similar Canaanite practice to being gathered mm-hmm. to your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the contrasting points that you, you brought out is, is how these, uh, these, fi- these four or five tombs were for one individual. That's even different than the monarchy. Like if we think about um, the Davidic dynasty, as we read through uh, Samuel and especially first and second Kings, we mm-hmm. have references to every one of the Davidic Kings, except the last couple who get buried somewhere else, but they're all gathered to their, to their ancestors in mm-hmm. the, the tombs of their fathers. And the t- so mm-hmm. the Kings are actually much more like the commoners, at least in this way. And perhaps um, that is a kind of built into the, the critique that Isaiah makes uh, against, against Shebna, uh, whether it's the, you know, the tomb of the Royal inscription. I actually, we've talked about this before. I kind of think the Pharaoh, if it's going to be the most like grandiose one, like the, you know, the, the lowest hanging fruit, the tomb of Pharaoh's daughter is just right there. Why not? And it, why not? I mean, but it's clear that they're saying like, you have a tomb among the rocks. God's going to throw you down and replace you with someone else. So it's 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 really interesting those those points you make. The other point I would um, that I would want to bring out here, uh, just for our for our for our listeners, uh, those of you who have been to Jerusalem, if you've if you've gone to the city of David and you've looked that direction, you probably have seen the the tomb of Pharaoh's daughter. And we should say it's not the tomb of Pharaoh's daughter. It's uh, it's a tr- it's a late tradition, not even really a tradition. It's an idea. Uh, that developed in the 18th and the night and popularized in the 19th century. Um, but you've seen that one, but you, you, you're probably more aware of the, the rock cut tombs further towards the north in the same valley, uh, which would be the, uh, the so-called pillar of Absalom and the tomb of Zechariah and the tombs of B'nai Hazir. And those are much later. I mean, those are, we're talking about second century BC for, to first century AD. They have you know, different dates. But it's interesting that if we think about someone living in the time of the New Testament, uh, so during the times when Jesus and the disciples and, you know, all the characters we read about in Josephus, that they were in Jerusalem, not only would they have seen these monumental contemporary-ish tombs in the Kidron Valley, but they would have continued to see the tomb of Pharaoh's daughter. They would have continued to see these other monolithic structures. So we're not just talking about something that only existed as a cool thing for the Iron Age. It, it, it really changed the landscape of Jerusalem's history that is now completely obscured by uh, the, the, the modern village of Sowan. So there's just so many interesting points. And, and even what, what Matt brought out there, the fact that just a little bit of that word exists on the tomb of Pharaoh's daughter, which is in Paleo-Hebrew, confirms that it has to be an Iron Age tomb versus a, um, versus a, uh, a later tomb. Because you have many people saying early on, it's, it's just part of the same thing, but it's actually much earlier, which is quite surprising. And so uh, just a fascinating look at Jerusalem's 
cemeteries in and around uh, in and, out, and around Jerusalem. And so anytime we bring this up, I always get excited about, you know, this yeah. particular topic. Well, you, you know, you started off with a really good comparison. Let me just say before I did the, the comparison and contrast with the, the tombs of the kings of Judah, and the house of David. Um, but there's so much else there. I mean, these the tombs in the Silwan necropolis are now part of a living landscape. I mean, they've been part of a living landscape. Um, unlike the ones to the north, which are, you know, later, late Hellenistic, early Roman period. And, you know, there's a rich history that we, that you could write just on the, the history of Silwan alone and how the, the monumental structures were repurposed, you know, first by Byzantine monks, and then families began living there during the Umayyad period. And, um, and you know, I, my, my hope and desire is that the project that I'm starting now, which has the immediate purpose of answering questions with regards to Judean mortuary culture during the Iron Age, can at least form a foundation for further work on the history of Jerusalem, uh, because the monuments don't go away; they're still there. And they and and you know, Chris mentioned the so-called tomb of Pharaoh's daughter, which has nothing to do with a, a daughter of the Pharaoh married to Solomon in the in the tenth century. It's it, you know, it, it was a name that would was loosely attached to the monument by pilgrims that got picked up by a French traveler named de Salcet in the mid-19th century and just became popular, popularized through his writing. And, and it's because, you know, travelers to Jerusalem, pilgrims and others reinscribed the landscape using the Bible. And these were things that were, were visible. Absalom's pillar to the north, which is Hellenistic in date, has nothing to do with Absalom, the son of David, again, another 10th century figure, but has everything to do with Jewish and Christian and later Muslim, you know, travelers, visitors to Jerusalem looking at it and saying, well, this must be the thing that's mentioned in the Bible, um, the monument of, of Absalom. So, you know, the other thing, the comparison that you made between the kings of, of Judah, I think that's an apt comparison. Uh, and I need to be careful that I don't go off in a completely opposite direction here because, uh, you know, what that, that actually happened. Well, to, it's, it's a Halloween episode. So we're, it's a Halloween we're, episode. we're, so we're a welcome to, we're on crypt. <laughs> we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into death. So and, and it's definitely on the, the subject of death. And as Kyle knows, I wrote my, my UCLA dissertation on the, the epilogues in the book of Kings that include basically the three phrases that ends the, the sequence. Book of Kings is a, a, a series of a sequential history of, of different Kings and, he, and it's patterned in a formulaic style with a, chrono, a chronistic prologue. And then it ends with, with what I would call a funerary epilogue because it's it, a, a series of stock statements. And he lay down with his fathers and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David or in Shomron in Samaria. And so-and-so his son ruled in his place. And so that was the subject of my UCLA dissertation that I wrote when Kyle and I were both both there. And it was later published um, by uh, Moore Zebeck uh, as Politics of Dead Kings. So it was published in, I think, 2010. I, I, I absolutely agree with Chris in that the, 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 um, the way in which the death of the king was, was uh, expressed publicly, most likely, and the way that it's... Um, presented to us in these formulaic terms in the Hebrew Bible, specifically the Book of Kings, but also the Book of Chronicles. It's built upon a template that's, that's established in, in Judahite mortuary culture. You know, everyone, the ideal death is to you know, be buried in the family tomb. 
And so the kings who ruled you know, from the Davidic lineage, who ruled over that dynasty, they were buried like everyone else. They were buried in the family tomb, which happens to be in the city of David. Most likely, I, I believe that you know, the early royal tombs were intramural. And so they were exceptional in the sense that they were not outside the city walls. They were inside the city walls of the on the eastern ridge, inside that area of Jerusalem that was known as the city of David. And and where are the where is where are yeah. these tombs, Matt? That's, that's yeah, a good question. Just, so that's that's the million dollar question. That that was a question that that was a big motivating that, that motivated a lot of early biblical archaeology. And so, you know, one of the earliest excavations in Jerusalem by Raymond Weil, the great uh, Egyptologist, um, was specifically to search for the tomb of David in the city of David. And, and um, I think it was the first Jewish excavation in the city of, in the city of Jerusalem. And it was pre-World War I. There were theories about the, uh, the Siloam Tunnel or Hezekiah's Tunnel. You know how it, it zigzags? Mm-hmm. It there's, it's not a straight line um, through the, the bedrock. And it zigzags most likely because the the, the, the stone cutters were following different types of stone that were easier to cut. Um, but there was a theory in the in the late 19th, early 20th century that it zigzagged because they didn't want to cut into the, uh, yeah, the royal yeah, tombs, yeah. the tombs of David, um, which is a fun theory, but I don't I don't place much stock in it. Now Raymond Vile, because he was funded by I believe by the De Rothschild family, you know, and tasked specifically with you know, searching for the, the, the tomb of David. Under those sorts, sorts of circumstances, archaeologists usually find what they're looking for. And so, you know, <laughs> Gotta make the going, donors happy. Gotta make exactly. the donors happy. And so he found something and he and he and he declared it to be the, the royal tomb. You know, it was it was empty, it was reused as a cistern in in the Roman period, early Roman period. Um but uh but he 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 felt that it was a tomb, but it's something that's um, controversial to this day. It's most Israeli archaeologists reject that interpretation, but there are others that place some stock in it. And I think it was Jeff Zorn who pointed out that the arguments that the the tomb, the, 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 the underground structure that Raymond Vile found, the arguments against it being the tomb of the House of David, is, or that it doesn't look anything like a Judahite tomb doesn't look like a bench tomb or a loculus tomb um, in, in its organization. But he did point out that it does look like <clears throat> late Bronze Age tombs. <laughs> mm. uh, and uh, there are similarities to certain late Bronze Age mortuary or uh, funerary structures or underground burial units. And, uh, and so maybe, you know, it was a pre-existing tomb that the Davidic kings took over. Uh, mm-hmm. Who knows? It's difficult to say. Well, one of the things I would I would just add to that is what's interesting about the tomb of David, and this is a whole other podcast in itself. But what's interesting about it is we have Second Temple sources that make reference to it. I mean, we have, uh, of yes. course, Josephus, who seems to actually be recording an earlier source talking about uh, talking about how Herod tried to plunder the the tomb of David from all its treasure. Uh, and then built an edifice afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then we, of course, have the famous one in the Pentecost sermon of of Peter, where mm-hmm. he compares the fact that Jesus has just raised from the dead to David. And then David had this uh, had 
this um, psalm, and he said that he wouldn't see corruption in the psalm. And he says, David is with us to this day. We know where his tomb is. But unfortunately, as I always like to tell people, they didn't say exactly where it was in the city of David. If they would, if you would have, we would be having this discussion. So it's possible that uh, either Zorn is right uh, uh, or potentially it uh, awaits discovery. And there are parts of the city of David that despite much excavation have not yet been uh, excavated. So, but the interesting thing about that is if, uh, if it is, um, if what, Josephus and the book of Acts say is correct, most likely it not only was a tomb that existed in the in the Iron Age, but it is something that had a large monument built over it um, that we can compare to what we see in Hebron with uh, the cave of Machpelah. Now, it's definitely not that size because that's a huge uh, monolithic or a megalithic structure, but it's it's interesting to think about what even the second temple landscape might have looked like in light of the influence of what was happening in the first temple period in terms of this mortuary cemetery culture, whether we're talking about Jerusalem's outskirts or inside the city itself. And so that's that's why whether we're, we're talking about Jerusalem, we can't just talk about uh, Iron Age. <laughs> we have to talk about, okay, what preceded it? What mm-hmm. happened afterwards? Because it's all kind of intertwined in this discussion. Yeah. Uh, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I think that uh, uh, again, you could get all of us off talking about this particular point. Well, let, me, let me just add two things to uh, Chris. In you know, for that first point, the southern end of the city of David, unfortunately, was has been largely quarried away through later phases, particularly the Roman period. And so these, you know, possible tombs or potential tombs have been partially eroded away. So we we can't. I mean, sorry, quarried away. So we can't say what the landscape looked like, unfortunately. And this is just the, the factor of it. What is clear though, is again, just to clarify for listeners, I think we've mentioned in previous episodes, there is a tomb of David in Jerusalem today, but that's over on the, the Western Hill or modern day Mount Zion. And this is nothing related with what we're talking about right now. So just to clarify, if anyone say, wait a second, I thought there was a tomb of David. And that's a whole later tradition that is not connected to these earlier traditions that we're talking about right now. Well, I think, you know, Chris really hit the nail on the head when he said, you just can't study something in the Iron Age when you're studying mm-hmm. Jerusalem. You have to take into account the entire broad range of history, the breadth of history in the city that's continually existed over mm-hmm. a large span of time. I mean, that's and that's the situation with Silwan. Um, but it's the same, also a similar situation on the Western Hill, where you have, you know, the traditional Tomb of David, which we both, we all know is, you know, a crusader period traditional uh, site um, <clears throat> and doesn't have any real firm historical connection with anything earlier than that. But, you know, I would say that there are two things that I want, I, I'd like to actually discuss here. First would be, and, then they're in, and they're interrelated. The first is the question of, well, how many tombs of David were there? And then the second question is, you know, how do this, does this relate to say the, the monumental funerary architecture that we see in Silwan across the Kidron Valley from the city of David. And as Chris noted, the, the tombs of the house of David, the tomb, tomb of David was a very well-known feature in Jerusalem's landscape in the second temple period, the Hellenistic and uh, early Roman period. But the question we have to ask is, is it the same structure that's referenced by the writer of Kings when the writer of Kings says that, and the king was buried in the city of David with his fathers? 
which indicates a communal tomb, suggests that it's inside the city walls. Um, and we have this passage in the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel harshly criticizes Jerusalem because it's been contaminated by the bones of dead kings. And, you know, here we have a, a biblical writer who takes exception to the fact that the, 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 the ritual purity of the, the, the sacred city of Jerusalem has been defiled by death. I mean, the reason why burials are outside the city walls in the kingdom of Judah is to separate uh, a defiling element that is the corpse from, from the realm of the living. And it's, and it's because of concerns over corpse, uh, the impurity of the corpse, uh, which, <clears throat> which makes somebody ritually impure and therefore they can't participate in the, uh, the sacrificial cult of, in Israelite religion. But the, um, the thing is with the, the tombs of David, which are mentioned in these, these later sources, it, I think it really also goes back to the, uh, the book of Kings. Because when we get to Hezekiah, the, form, the, the formula that's used following and he lay down with his fathers, they stop, the book of Kings stops stating that, and <clears throat> that the king was buried in the city of David with his fathers. In fact, we don't really have any reference to where Hezekiah was buried. And then after Hezekiah with Manasseh, Ammon, Jos Josiah, um, <clears throat> they're all buried apparently in individual tombs. And the, the word that the, 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 the location is, 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 that's given is this ambiguous place known as the, uh, the Garden of Uzzah, the Gan Uzzah. Um, <clears throat> we have no idea what Uzzah means. And it's, it's apparently a proper noun, but. You know, who Uzzah was, I mean, maybe Uzziah, but probably not. Uzziah was the name, according to the chronicler of one of our Davidic kings. Um, <clears throat> so what, what it does tell us, or what, what it strongly su suggests, is that in the late Judean monarchy, the kings probably, the, the, the burial of the king probably occurred somewhere else. There was a, a second or a separate location for the burials of the tombs of, of the of the Judahite kings, or the Davidic kings, and um, I I tend tend to follow Gabi Barkai's suggestion that the Garden of Uzzah was on the western hill. Barkai has long suggested that the tomb of David that's mentioned in these later sources is, is in fact the Garden of Uzzah. Um, it's just that. It became known as the tomb of David. Um, and even though there might've been individual tombs that were interconnected, um, it's somewhere there and located on the Western Hill. It would be one reason why um, Josephus, I believe Josephus confuses the Western Hill with the city of David, correct? Yeah, he, he, he talks about the lower, I have to look at the source itself, but I, I don't know in that passage if he, if he says something more along the lines of just it's in the, I have to look at it to be able to, to remember, but. So, so if I could, if I could turn our attention away from the Western Hill, I mean, who knows where the Garden of Uzo is located? I, I, um, I think it was Amos Cloner suggested that the, uh, the, the grandiose tomb systems at beneath Saint Etienne were in fact the, uh, the Garden mm -hmm. of Uzo. And, and there, it might be the tomb of the kings that are mentioned um, when Josephus describes the uh, siege the, the siege works of the Romans surrounding the 
exterior of Jerusalem. It's a fascinating argument. I don't know. I mean, who knows? It's, it's difficult to say without any inscriptions. But if I could get back to the inscriptions in Silwan, both the, the royal steward inscription and then the, the inscription on the tomb immediately adjacent to it, right next, right, literally next door, um, also a monolithic monumental tomb with a monumental inscription written above its entrance. They both employ a formula that's, that says, um, it starts off with the words, Zot, Kibrat, somebody. So it's, this is the sepulcher of somebody. Of, of, in both cases, the names are lost. We only have usual. a few letters. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, the, and, the, and the term that's used is, for tomb is not kever, it's kivora, which is formed from the same shoresh or root, but it's formulaic. It begins the inscription, and, and, and it's patterned on a, a, a style that we see in Northwest Semitic inscriptions that, that is dedicatory. Um, that's usually how we classify them. But it indicates, um, it, it does something linguistically that's really quite neat. We refer to this as diaxis. And what that fancy word means is that <clears throat> the word that's used at the beginning of these dedicatory inscriptions gives us the name of what it is that's being dedicated or what it is that's being claimed, okay? So a wall, if you're, if you're dedicating the construction of a wall, the dedicatory inscription that's placed on that wall, it's going to begin with the word wall. Likewise, temple, it's going to begin with the word temple. And, and so, you know, we could identify the object that it's on by the, based on the, 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 first, the, the first couple of words in the inscription. And, and in both of these examples, the first, the, the, the word for the object is, uh, is a, a rare word for tomb in Hebrew, kevorah. And if you look at its usage in the Hebrew Bible, it only occurs a few times, and it's always used for individual burials. It's the term that's used for Rachel's tomb. Hmm. And, and it's the term that's used for the kings who were buried in the Garden of Uzzah. And, and so I, you know, and again, here I follow Gabi Barkai, although, you know, I, I came to this conclusion just independently with my own um, dissertation research, but it's something that Barkai had been arguing be before me. Um, the term means specifically sepulcher. And I would go further and say that the term specifically means an above ground sepulcher that, that was visible, not just the entrance, you know, into a underground cave or rock cut chamber, but it was something that was a standalone structure. And, you know, Rachel's tomb or her, <clears throat> her sepulcher, you know, was a landmark that, that marked the, the landscape tribal boundaries. I mean, and it's a contested one, you know, that's claimed by different tribes. And likewise, the, you know, the, the, the tombs of, of, of David that are mentioned in these Hellenistic and early Roman sources and mentioned also in the New Testament, visible place, um, not, you know, an underground tomb, not something that might have been hid, hidden beneath the floors of what was once a palace, but something above ground. And so there's, there's a lot to be said there um, with regards to death and commemoration and, and how Funerary architecture affects the memory of a, how it relates to memory and how it can really transform a landscape over time. 
Well, this is a really interesting point. And if I can just jump in with a question here, um, and this this is tied into your more recent book as well, um, was a history of death in the Hebrew Bible, if I remember the, the title. Moral, yeah, that's it. Close, close <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, and you, you, so the two part question actually is really interesting on the one hand. So with, with David, right. Do we, do we see this kind of regular, um, pattern when he's buried? Do we, we do see it, which is interesting because, right. He, if he's being gathered to his fathers, he's not from Jerusalem, right? His family isn't there, right? He was reigning in Hebron before he comes from Bethlehem. And so it's a really interesting claim. And this ties into, I think, an argument you make in your book about the bones of Joseph and the connection to the land and using burial as a way to, uh, you know, make, make your claim, if you will, appropriate the land, but also tie into these kind of theological claims, covenantal claims that we see happening in Israel. And so my question that that comes along with this is if we have the tomb of David and the, the lineage of David in Jerusalem, you there's been an argument that we see the tombs of the kings of Israel within Samaria as well. Mm-hmm. And so in your mind, are these claims that are, are they, basically are these specific burials, these intramural burials, specific claims that are unique to the lineage as a way of saying, this is our capital. This is our new, our new land here. And you know, perhaps then, then we can look at coming back to what you were just talking about here with these later traditions evolving and in, in potentially some way, but w- what do you think is happening here? I guess is my question. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's a good question. Um, in, in that it, it, it links to a lot of, different things that we see both archaeologically as well as within the literature of the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, the same for stock formulaic statements that mark the epilogues ending each king of e- e- the career of each king of Judah are also used for the northern kings in Israel and they're buried in Samaria. Um, and um, um, Norma Franklin, an archaeologist in Israel, has 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 made what I believe to be a quite compelling argument mm-hmm. um, that there are um, features that were excavated in Samaria and beneath the palatial structure there that, that should be identified as, uh, as those tombs. Now, I think that she's right, but you know, it's, it's, it's like everything it's, it's debated and it's somewhat controversial, but in either case, you know, regardless of whether those are the actual tombs of the Kings of Israel or not, the literature suggests that, like the House of David, the, the northern dynasties were burying their dead kings within the city walls and possibly beneath the, the floors of the palace or on the grounds of the palace. And in this way, they were emulating Near Eastern kings. We, we, this is something that we see, for example, with Assyrian kings. Mm-hmm. So it's not unusual behavior, and it makes sense. It makes sense because you don't want to leave your royal tombs outside the city walls where you can't protect them. Right. Um, if your city is besieged, the first thing that the, uh, the, the, your enemy is going to do is they're going to desecrate those royal tombs. And we know that the, uh, the Assyrians frequently did that in, the, in, in their siege tactics. They would, they, in order to hum- humiliate the city that they were besieging, they would, you know, destroy their burials and grind the bones of their ancestors into yeah, dust. That- 
that mm-hmm. famous one of Ashurbanipal, where they, it's from Elam, where they have it, and he's bringing out the, the tombs of the ancestors, and he's literally watching over their shoulder as they grind up the bone. I mean, it's just, yeah, like, yeah. it's uh, like, yeah. dang, that, that, that's some <laughs> Halloween stuff right there. Well, I mean, another great one is the Babylonian <laughs> prince who flees from the Assyrians, and he takes with him the bones of his ancestors yeah. so that the Assyrians can't get them when he leaves Babylon. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is a real concern. So there is certainly a practical consideration in burying the bones of dead Kings inside the city walls of Jerusalem or Samaria. But there's also something that I think we could identify literary, uh, in the literature, um, that you've touched upon Kyle. And that's what is, what exactly is being claimed? And yeah, David dies. And he's buried with his fathers in the city of David. Okay. But his father, Jesse, was probably buried somewhere in Bethlehem. I mean, there's no ancestral tomb for David in Jerusalem, but that's beside the point. I mean, these, the, the history of, of the United Monarchy is being told from a much later perspective. And all of these things are being conflated. And according to that history, David is the ancestor who conquered Jerusalem, named it after himself, and established it as the, the patrimony for the line of David. Again, you know, the history of David and Solomon is is a contested point in in archaeology today, and we don't need to get into that. But what we can recognize is that the literature, regardless of when it was written, is making that claim by telling us that David was buried in the city of David with his fathers, even though, regardless of how you read it, he most likely wasn't buried with any fathers. You know, a similar thing happens with, uh, with Abraham. So Abraham, his wife dies. And he buys the cave of Machpelah um, in the field of Ephron in, in Hebron, okay? And he buries his wife there. And then he dies a few chapters later, and he's gathered to his, his, his peoples. And you could say, yes, you know, Sarah was his people, his, his, mm-hmm. his, his, his kin. But uh, it's really more about using an idiom for death that expresses reunion with dead king, kin, dead family members, um, inside the family tomb, which marks your inheritance, okay? And it's, and it's related to the um, heritage through lineal descent. And there's a clear line that you could trace through the cave of Machpelah in, in Hebron in the book of Genesis, where it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob, you know, there's a lot of effort that has to go into transporting Jacob's body from Egypt, where he dies, to Hebron, but ultimately he gets there, which Mm -hmm. is why, you know, when Jacob dies in Egypt, we're told immediately he was gathered to his people. Um, And he was gathered to his people because the process that was involved in his burial, which was a long extended process, ultimately ended with him being buried in the promised land, which is what he asked to be. he he, He tasked his sons with transporting him back to the land that was promised to Abraham to be buried in the family tomb where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebecca are all, are, are all buried, but not Rachel. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and he mentions that. And, and so it's, it's all related to how burials mark inheritance and how they, and how they form. They're a strategy in forming social identity by claiming the dead and by, you know, establishing who your ancestors were. So there's a dis- but but there's a distinction between the kings of Israel and Judah and say your average Israelite. 
And I think you mm. can recognize that distinction in these beautiful idioms for death that are used in Genesis as well as in Kings. In Genesis, we have these two phrases and they're occasionally conflated and they are semantically parallel, but they are, and he was gathered to his peoples in Genesis or, and he lay down or slept with his fathers in Kings. Both, you know, use a, a verb, either gather or, or lay down or repose. Both verbs can be used to describe the condition of the dead. We find both of them in Hebrew and Phoenician funerary inscriptions. And both of them end with a, uh, a collective plural noun. There, it, so the, the individual is assigned to a collective, a, a collective group. Now, with the, uh, the patriarchs, it's the peoples, the Am or Amin, whereas the, uh, in, 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 um, in the Book of Kings and Chronicles, it's the Avot, the fathers or ancestors, if you want to um, translate it that way. And I think that that distinction is important because the, the, the ancestors who are described in the Book of Genesis, who are buried in the cave of Machpelah, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, these are ancestors that any Israelite can claim. But the fathers who are buried either in Jerusalem or in Samaria, that's a very selective group of ancestors that only the kings of Israel and Judah can claim. And so that's why I, I believe, you, and the one you have a, a, a broader term for kinship, whatever the nuance of Am means, it can mean kinsmen or kinfolk or people, or eventually it takes on the word, uh, it takes on the sense and meaning of nation. On the other hand, you have fathers, which, you know, you could render it in a gender neutral manner by translating it as ancestors. And I'm fine with that, but it does have, in the context of Kings and Chronicles, it has a very specific meaning that relates to patrilineal succession or dynastic succession, where kin kingship is transferred from from the dead father to the living son. And so, yeah, I, I think it's important that these kings were buried inside their royal capital, both for practical reasons, but also because the royal capital symbolized their royal patrimony. It was something that they inherited along with kingship um, from their fathers. I, I think there's so many great points about this. And just to maybe summarize a bit for, for our readers, in some ways, you, you really can't tell the story of the Old Testament without talking about the death and the memory of that death. And if we think about the every story, uh, virtually of, of almost every biblical character, their death is important. And what happens to their body is important. So, I mean, if we think about, and just to group a few of these together, the patriarchs are buried at the cave of Machpelah, but they purchase that for a price and they go back and they're returning to that. That's, that's a key point. David does the same thing. He purchases the threshing floor of Aruvna after conquering, conquering Jerusalem, and he's buried there. When uh, Omri goes to the Hill of Shimmer, he purchases it, and he's, and he's buried. It, it's in some ways a deed Absolutely. of ownership. Mm -hmm. They're not bringing a lawyer. Uh, they're, they're showing that this is my, these are my, the, the deed is essentially their bones mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the connection. So mm -hmm. that's so crucial. And then when you get the drama in these stories, over what happens to the king's body when it's when it's gone, that is heightened. Now, for us, you know, in the 21st century, when we watch something like 
Avengers and uh, we don't really care, you know, that they just died and, you know, that, that's fine. But for them, you know, what happens to Josiah's death body after he dies at near Megiddo is important. Uh, what happens in, uh, even in Assyrian thought, when Sargon II dies way off in Tubal and his body is never found and there's this 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 Sennacherib's curse on Sargon, which which is kind of reflected in Isaiah 14, it was like the worst, it was like the spookiest thing that could happen to continue with our, <laughs> mm-hmm. our Halloween theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and I've just been reading through Saul. I mean, he's decapitated, his body is sent out. And why, why go and risk taking his bones off of the walls of Beit Shan? Why do they do that? Because it's, it expresses the kinship and it also expresses the importance of the afterlife mm-hmm. of the memory of those bones in not only remembering that king, but how it has relevance to the story and has relevant. And, and to me, that's not something that can be simply faked from a, as, far, as far as being a literary creation. It's baked into the DNA of the culture of the, of the Old Testament. And it's very different than what you encounter once you get into the second temple period, where there's totally different perspectives on how they're burying their dead. And so it's just so fascinating. And so all that was, um, you know, I, I love this stuff. And, and kind of like a, a side question to that. Uh, in recent years, um, uh, and I'll give a little bit of backstory. Uh, back, I think, uh, just after the Six-Day War, um, the cave of Machpelah was broken into, and and there was some pottery collected uh, mm-hmm. underneath, and there was the claim made that it was a Middle Bronze Age tomb, and it may, may, maybe maybe well be. Now, for those of you who don't know, there's a, a massive megalithic structure built by Herod the Great over the traditional cave, which would mean that we're talking about first century BC tradition. Now, in a couple, in the last couple of years. David Ben Shlomo has published the pottery that was collected illicitly from that, and it seems to date to the 9th and the 8th century, which is, again, not absolute confirmation that this is the cave of Machpelah, and there are ongoing burials there and somehow commemorating it. But it leaves open the possibility that even at a place that was no longer the the capital of the kingdom of of Judah, there's still this this attachment to it. And so it all... all three of these big places, Hebron, Jerusalem, and Samaria, we can, we can present archaeological evidence that's not a slam dunk in, in favor of, of the things Matt, or, Matt has been saying, but it seems to fit very nicely with what we see archaeologically and what we see from the text. So uh, anyway, do you have any thoughts about uh, the, the, the Hebron cave and, and, and these details? Me? No, I have not. Um, <laughs> I, I'm aware of them. Um, I mean, I've, I've read them, but I, I don't have any thoughts there. I, I think a lot of biblical scholars, um, especially in, the, in these days when so many biblical scholars assign the production of biblical literature to the post-exilic Persian period, a lot of biblical scholars see the story of the cave of Machpelah as reflective of, say, a changing landscape in which you have Edomites, the Idumeans, encroaching upon, you know, moving across the Jordan Valley on the Aravah and into the Shvela and the hill country. And, um, and so, you know, there's discussion over, you know, whether the cave of Machpelah is a claim um, by Judeans for that space, you know, or, or whether it created some contest between two groups of peoples who claimed an- Abraham as an ancestor, which is an interesting thing because that's pretty much 
what we have in the current cave of Machpelah, which is a Jewish. Exactly. Only some more things yeah. change. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's interesting in that sense. Um, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we, we went off in a different direction. So I'm trying to remember what where I was going to make a point, uh, And I think I've, I've lost it here. But story in your, your book about his bones, right? He's not, he's not brought to Hebron or the Mac, the, the tomb of Machpelah, but he's brought to Shechem. Mm-hmm. And this in it of itself also, I think, has ramifications because number one, this is the first place that Abraham visits, according to the text, when he comes into Canaan, he goes to Shechem, kind of sets up a shop for a little bit and then continues through the entire central hill country. And what you, I'm wondering again, here's a question for you. You see now this connection with Hebron in the burials and this kind of claim to inheritance there. Now with Joseph, you see a claim to Shechem and the Northern part of the hill country. Let's throw in Rachel as well, because she's, she's the mother of Benjamin, right? And her tomb probably is in the region of Benjamin. So there's a claim to this territory as well. Well, there, there are different locations given by the biblical writers for Rachel's tomb. So. Right. Right. And this is really the challenge and the, the, the traditional one even today is, is not so much in Benjamin south of Jerusalem, but I think, you know, there's good reason that we should probably locate it a bit further north. But anyway, if that is the case, there could be a claim to this, the inheritance of Benjamin. So I'm just, I'm just wondering if, you know, again, building off of this, this pattern of where you're buried kind of ties you to an inheritance of the land and bringing it back to the date of the, the question sorry, the question of the date of the text. And as you mentioned, a lot of scholars, biblical scholars will say a lot of these texts are composed in the post-exilic period and, you know, maybe aren't reflecting, you know, some good traditions or even some, some historical reality. And you, you start to bring in, in your book, case of Kirbet Beit Loy or Kirbet Beit Loya. And the similarity in, in concepts between that and even Exodus and the, the transgenerational blessing. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if, if you can pull together for us the, the connection between this Iron Age tomb inscription that is building on a tradition in, or that is connected to a tradition in Exodus and also viewing it in the bigger picture of these claims to specific land, which seems to be part of the entire Abrahamic covenant of God saying, here, Abraham, you're going to get all this land. Mm-hmm. And here now you, you're buried in this, the Southern part, you're buried in the Northern part, you're buried in the central part. And, and how does this impact the literature? How is that then viewed historically? I mean, are we looking at a good tradition that you would say is pre-exilic mm-hmm. based on the, the, the mortuary evidence? Or do we need to really delve into what some of these biblical scholars are saying and say, no, no, it's really a late phenomenon? Yeah, I would say you can't, you, you cannot state for certain that it's a late phenomenon. But the, 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 the whole issue of dating biblical literature is a thorny issue. And it's I really not what I want to enter into here, um, because I don't think that the archaeological material remains can be used firmly as evidence. What it can mm-hmm. tell us is that these ideas originated in the Iron. Mm-hmm. And, and as we've already mentioned with all of these different things from the tomb of David that's mentioned in the book of Acts to, you know, Herod's cave of Machpelah in Hebron um, to the village of Silwan on the Mount of Olives, you know, the landscape um, contains ideas and these ideas never really go away. They're just basically reinterpreted by people, by, by new generations who come to, to, come to the land or travel to the land, or just ideas are tr- transformed over time. 
And so, you know, whether Rachel's tomb outside of Bethlehem today is the actual Rachel's tomb that the biblical writers were referring to is, is a question that ultimately is, is difficult and probably cannot be answered. Although most of the evidence seems to indicate that it's, it's a later tradition. But the fact that it's a later tradition really says something. And it says something to us about how the biblical writers are responding to death. You know, they're aware that their ancestors are buried here in the land, with, if they're writing in, in Jerusalem or somewhere within the land. But, you know, did, did Jeremiah actually know where Rachel's tomb was? Where was it? <clears throat> is it the same place as, say, it, is it the same location that's mentioned in the book of Samuel? Um, <clears throat> what about Joseph's tomb? It's never mentioned after, you know, after Joshua um, and Shechem. And that, that probably reflects the bias of the biblical writers who were who, who like to tell stories about Jerusalem and the area to the south and not necessarily to the north. Okay. And so the ideas can change over time. And, um, and, and for that reason, you know, I can't, I think it's difficult to, to say, for example, in the case of Kirbet Beit Lai, you know, we have a, we have a set of inscriptions that are found inside a tomb that I relate to this passage in the book of Exodus, which in, in, involves uh, terminology that we also associate with the care for the dead. And, I, and it also, you know, proclaims that the God of Israel is the God of the land. And it makes all these other statements that I, I, I build an argument that it's related to claiming the land through through tombs, which is not a, a radical idea by any means. Uh, and it's, and, but here we see a, a, a set of tomb inscriptions that use vocabulary that, that, that's similar, if not identical, to what we find in the Bible. And what that tells us is that the idea was around in the late Iron Age. Um, it doesn't necessarily tell us that the book of Exodus was written in the late Iron Age, although I don't, I, I you know, I, I, I'm actually a, a pre-exilic P-source adherent. So I think that there's a lot in <laughs> Exodus that was, that's, you know, Iron Age in date. Uh, um, P is the pre-source for some of you listeners out there. So Correct. Yes. So, um you can't necessarily make a one-to-one connection. You just have to look at how these ideas, how they resonate within the landscape. And that's the beautiful thing about using death and burial um, <clears throat> because the landscape contains death. It contains the dead. And, it, and it, it's the locus really for these ancestral stories. And so, you know, to get back to what Chris said earlier, ancestors and the dead, they're everywhere. In, in, in the Bible, we, we just overlook them because we're so used to ignoring death. Um, we, you know, we bury our dead in cemeteries and then maybe every once in a while we go back to visit the graves of our grandparents or other relatives. But it, it's a very rare feature, in, at least in American culture. And I don't know how regularly ancient Israelites visited the tomb, but I know that there's evidence that suggests that they did. Um, more often than, say, we do in our modern culture. But, but let's go back to biblical literature and look at how it's organized around ideas of death and burial. The book of Genesis ends with the death and burial of not just Jacob, but his son Joseph as well. And then Joseph tasks his, his brothers with, he, he, he makes them swear an oath saying that his bones will be brought back to the promised land. And, um, and, he, and he uses voc- Hebrew vocabulary that we see used elsewhere to describe the care, care for the dead, 
And it's the sim, sim, again, similar vocabulary to what we see in the Iron Age inscriptions in Kirbet Beit Li. And so, you know, for the biblical writers, taking care of the bones of Joseph was very important. And which is why when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt during the Exodus event, in Exodus chapter 13, we're told that he also brought the bones of Joseph with them. Mm-hmm. The implication there, and it's it's something that the biblical writers never really address, is that while the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, they were wandering around with Joseph's bones. You know, and you look at all, all of the all of the death accounts that are found in the book of Numbers, where the where the book of Numbers effectively is a story about the, the generation that's being punished by God by not being allowed to enter into the into the promised land. They have to die. So the book of Numbers describes how they how they're counted. There's you know, we have all these, we have a bunch of census lists that are given. And then they wander around Sinai or, or the wilderness and they die and they're buried. And, and so that, that way, when we get to, to Deuteronomy, it's just Moses. But Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death and his burial on Mount Nebo. Mm-hmm. But Joseph is never buried during any of, any of these events because the Israelites... Great point. <laughs> they're all dying for 40 yeah. years. And they're, yeah. yep, you got to make sure Joseph doesn't get buried. You're yeah. not important. Exactly. <laughs> and so then we... <laughs> but, I mean, the same thing happens at the end of Joshua. Joshua dies, Eliezer dies, um, and Joseph's bones are buried. And it's told, boom, boom, boom. It ends the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua ends by telling us where people are buried. And it tells us specifically that they're buried on their inheritance. And there's a lot that we can learn there. And and in writing a history of death in the Hebrew Bible, I think the point that I was trying to really trying to stress with this book is that the ancestors were important, and it's it's critical for us in interpreting the Bible to pay attention to how death is described using funerary imagery. And so, for that reason, I, I leaned heavily on the archaeological evidence for Ju- Judahite or Judean mortuary culture, which is quite robust. I mean, we have you know over four hundred rock cut or cave tombs in Judah that date to the Iron Age. You know, with that date to the period of the kingdom of Judah. So we have enough evidence to reconstruct how the elite buried their dead. And, and that's important because the Bible, as much as it, I think, discusses the dead in positive terms and draws from funerary imagery, we don't have any description of how a, a funeral should occur or how burial should occur. I mean, now it's not just that the biblical writers were trying to ignore death and burial. They weren't. I mean, they, they also don't tell us how, you know, you're supposed to conduct a marriage ritual. So, and that's because the, uh, the, the regulations that are given to us in Torah in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is all about containing purity or mm-hmm. containing impurity and establishing purity in relation to the uh, tabernacle. And so there we get, you know, discussions of corpse impurity and how to remove corpse impurity. But outside of that, we really don't have any specific instructions with how, with regards to how to um, to deal with the dead. Yeah, and as a result, biblical scholars tend to think that the biblical writers were trying to avoid death, which they weren't, or that they were trying to deny death and celebrating life, whatever that's supposed to mean. Which is, I think, also a problematic interpretation. 
The biblical writers accepted death as a part of life. And you could say that they celebrated their dad by extolling the virtues of the ancestors. But the ancestors were formed a critical link for the biblical writers with the past. And through the ancestors, we they, they were able to preserve, say, the ideas of covenant. We're here in this land because our ancestors were buried here. And those same ancestors received promises from our God that this is our land. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's really how it works. And, and I think this is important because there's a very popular belief among biblical scholars today that anytime we see ancient Israelites or Judeans caring for the dead, burying their dead, placing stuff inside the tomb, say to feed the dead, which they did, it reflects something known as ancestor worship, which is this idea that, you know, early cultures saw their dead as powerful ghost-like entities who, uh, who had the ability to either bless or curse the living. Mm, that's spooky. Yeah, yeah it's, it is spooky. And, <laughs> and remember, and this is a yeah. good topic. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. So, keep going. We like it. <laughs> and, and it's not that we don't have evidence for ghosts in the Bible. I mean, there's the famous account of Saul and the uh, ghost of Samuel mm-hmm. and the necromancer of <laughs> Endor. So, but... And the biblical writers actually have a lot to say about necromancy. They hate it. (laughs) (laughs) And necromancy actually appears, no, necromancy is a funny thing in that, you know, it appears in all different types of biblical literature. It's, it's explicitly denounced in, uh, in, in Torah, in the Pentateuch, where we have laws that say if any, if any man or woman is, is found conjuring up the dead through necromancy, they should be executed. Okay. Um, it's described in narrative in the story of Saul in the book of Samuel, uh, contacting a necromancer at Endor in order to get in touch with dead Samuel. And it's it's even um, mentioned in the prophetic rebuke of, of Isaiah. And the term and there's a fixed set of terms that are used to uh, to describe necromancy. Now, at the same time, there isn't a single artifact and Kyle correct me if I'm wrong because you're in and Chris as well I mean both of you are are archaeologists I'm really just a biblical scholar who works on archaeology I can't think of a single artifact that we could confidently connect with necromancy in ancient Israel I, I would say no. you're right except maybe and it was just timed for uh, release for Halloween much like this episode uh, <laughs> Irving Finkel, uh, produced a new uh, tablet which seems to show a ghost lead- we're talking about something from the third millennium and from Mesopotamia we're not talking okay. about something from ancient Israel but I'm just saying that's the closest thing I can think of to it and one of the interesting things in, in, is they don't say that necromancy didn't work <laughs> they just yeah, exactly. practice yeah, it, it. it absolutely that's the, yeah. <laughs> and biblical writers like, believe that it was effective yeah, now I, I would what Finkel is drawing from is, is that in cuneiform literature there's, there's an abundance of literature on ghosts, and um, and there's a lot of literature that involves exorcism, the removal of ghosts, who are often a problem in Babylon and Assyria. And there's also, and it's related to also um, descriptions of necromancy, which was quite popular in Assyria. And the term that's used for ghosts in, in Akkadian is atemu, which appears once in Hebrew in the book of, of Isaiah, where it's 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 used as one of the divine the beings, the ghosts that are connect, that are that are um, 
divined by through necromancy. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so there's an interesting connection there. But I bring up nec- I bring up necromancy because you know often we'll find biblical scholars point to the negative response to necromancy in biblical literature, and they'll say, "Well, this is evidence for um, um, this is evidence that." The Israelites engaged engaged in ancestor worship, which is which is false. Ancestor worship and necromancy are two different things. Ancestor involved ancestor worship involves stating somebody claiming a dead person as your ancestor, and then claiming that they have the ability to bless your land or curse you know your enemies. Necromancy involves contacting the dead, regardless of whether they're an ancestor or not. Not worshiping the dead, okay, in order to get some sort of divine blessing, but to contact the dead in order to receive privileged information. I mean, that's precisely what's going on in Samuel. He's trying to get some, you know, he's trying to get a better sense of what to do in his in his coming battle against the Philistines. And 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 this really explains why the biblical writers were so opposed to necromancy, because when if you read carefully in Samuel, necromancy is 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 described as an alternative to divining the word of God. And so you could place necromancy and prophecy on opposite ends of the spectrum because they do the same thing. You're seeking wisdom through divine sources. And and so that's why the biblical writers probably were so opposed to necromancy. But necromancy, first of all, should not be conflated with ancestor worship nor was necromancy linked in any ways that we could recognize, that we could identify with burial practices. You know, when when Saul goes to the, the necromancer, he goes to her home. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't grab, she doesn't go to Samuel's tomb and take out his skull and start talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's no evidence that there were Hamlet any style exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last four years um, so there's no connection between necromancy and burial practices or funerary rituals that that, that we could that, that are apparent in any of our sources and so we need to separate those but i would also say that ancestor worship is a bogus category that shouldn't be applied at all to ancient israel or to Judahite mortuary culture. Now, that's not to say that I'm opposed to, say, terminology like the cult of the dead. I think that there probably was a cult of the dead because it was important in ancient Israel or in ancient Judah to curate ideas of ancestors around the tomb and to care for the dead in order, again, in order to um, maintain that connection with the past. And how they did it is, is difficult it is difficult to say. I mean, we could only read between the lines in biblical literature and, you know, interpret the material remains in a certain way. But there's no evidence that they were actually worshiping the dead. And there's no evidence that they viewed the dead as having divine powers, um, being supernatural entities. The terms that we have for ancestors are always used in a positive sense in the Bible. Nobody's ever criticized for burying the dead or approaching a tomb. Yes, there are purity laws, but those are just simply boundary markers. Keeping, the, say, the sacrificial cult of Yahweh separate from the care for the dead, okay? These were separate categories for the biblical writers, and, they were, and, they were, and they were, there was a line that delineated the separation, and that line was defined through 
purity rituals. And the, the idea of ancestor worship is really rooted in highly problematic 19th century anthropo anthropological work, which saw the evolution of religion or evolution of civilization, if I could use that loaded term, um, as beginning with, say, primitive forms of religion. Um, and then it eventually it would have evolved over time. So people you know, didn't know how to, primitive societies, again, I'm using really bad terminology here, but this is, these are the terms that people like Spencer and others in the 19th century were using. And this was picked up by James Frazier in the late 19th, early 20th century. This idea that religion evolves from ancestor worship. And in the 70s and 80s, and then continuing to this day, it became really popular among biblical scholars who wanted to argue that, say, um, the Josianic reform in the seventh century was an effort to attack ancestor worship in order to say, <clears throat> remove power from traditional kinship groups and refocus that, that power around the temple in Jerusalem. It's a great argument, but it's, but its entire premise is, is, is problematic and it really doesn't have any good evidence for it. I, the evidence that's often used is Deuteronomy 26, where you know the vow for the first few that when you bring tithes and first fruits, you're supposed to bow and say, I have not eaten any of it when I was impure or, or, or engaged in mourning practices, nor have I given any of this food to the dead. It doesn't say that you're not supposed to give food to the dead. It just says that you're not supposed to repurpose that food and give it as a tithe dedicated in the name of in the name of the God of Israel. Again, boundary markers. Yeah, there, there is no clear polemic against the dead outside of the polemic against necromancy, which is something entirely other. And and to get back to the original point, I think that the problem that I have with this idea of ancestor worship and so-called polemics against ancestor worship is it distracts us as biblical scholars from a very important element in biblical literature. And that element is the dead as ancestors and the veneration of their burial sites, which, which ends, you know, the books of, of Genesis and, and, and Joshua, it structures Genesis and Kings. This is a key aspect of ancient Israelite culture um, that is, is there in, in the Bible. And, and if, if we want to argue over, you know, polemics against ancestor worship, we're, we're ignoring that importance. Yeah, I, I think such so many wonderful statements there, and I would just add not so much um, you know an additional comment, but just to put this together, you, you did big picture Bible. Let's think about the story of uh, that you mentioned with Saul and Samuel, and you did a good job connecting those dots. But if you think about how the narrative works, Samuel and Saul are uh, you know connected figures throughout the narrative. Samuel mm -hmm. is the one who is the word of revelation to him throughout. And there comes a point in time where it escalates to where Saul just becomes a kind of a crummy king and he disobeys him on these two points, most especially with the Amalekites and not obeying to wipe them all out, including their king. And it specifically says that he will not see him until he until he dies. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening in the next narrative is, you know, he loses the, the ephod, which is the ability to, to get and have access to the word of Yahweh. It goes mm -hmm. to David and David now has Yahweh's spirit. And so at the very end, Saul is so desperate because he doesn't have 
a word of revelation from mm-hmm. his go-to source, Samuel, and he's mm-hmm. going to the far end of the spectrum, as you indicated, by going to a necromancer to be able to call him up, because it's the only way he can do it. And so what it, what it's showing here is getting sidetracked on ancestor worship and all these other things. Regardless if you think the story is historical or not, you're not able to read the story well in its own context without these frameworks. Um, and so I, I think that's that's a great point. And one other kind of side thing, um, as you were talking about Joseph, I just read for the very first time uh, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Okay. It's a fantastic <laughs> novel. And if you haven't read it, listeners, you should. It's a piece of you know, Texas culture, but in it, it ends spoiler alert. Well, you know, if you, if you, if you don't, if you want to read it, this is a spoiler. alert. So stop here. But in the story, Gus McRae, who is the two main character, he, he dies all the way up in Montana. And the last, his dying wish is for his, uh, for his colleague, Texas Rangers for many years to carry his body, which is by that point um, from it's, the whole book is going to Montana all the way back to Lonesome Dove, which is on the border of the Rio Grande with Mexico. And so he, it talks about how he's carrying it in his wagon. He's fighting. It, it's important. It, so what I'm saying is, is even though we're talking about a big difference between uh, 19th century Texas culture and uh, culture that we have in the Bible, there's still these themes that you see associated with the body. They're not as prevalent as you see it in modern literature, but they can still show up. Uh, so I never thought that I'd compare Joseph to Gus McRae, uh, but but it's there. If I could, if I could just jump in really quickly and, and, and tie another feature of American history in my book, The History of Death in the Hebrew Bible, I quote the famous speech by Chief Seattle, um, in which he, uh, which was published in a newspaper in the 19th century, in which he he denounces American settler colonialism, whatever you want to call it, um, you know basically that was destroying his homeland. And, and it's a famous speech, whether it's historical or not, is something that's debated by American historians. Or it, it seems to have developed over time, not unlike biblical literature. Um, but there's a key statement that he makes. And he says, you're dead when they, go, when they die. They go off to a distant place to have it. But my dead are linked here in this land. We, we live with them. And this, so that, that, that's what makes this land sacred. And I, I and and it really struck me, you know, when I read through that, um, when, when I read through that, that looked at that speech, because it, it is it is so very similar to the way that the ancient Israelites thought of their death. But this is obscured because the idea and concept of death um, changed in the you know the late first millennium, and it and it changed quite radically with the advent of Christianity. And you know what we start seeing is a. Uh, is a separation of the of the dead from tombs and from land, okay? And we start seeing, say, a concept of post-mortem existence that's vetted through, uh, you know, that's vetted as, as I, you know, the, the seat of judgment or whatever you want to call it, where the righteous go to go to paradise and the and the sinners, you know, go to a place of punishment. And um, and there's a whole history there that I don't even really get into in my book because that's that's a later development that we start seeing, I would say, as early as the Hellenistic period in Jewish literature. But, it, you know, in, in a, an American Christian culture, you know, we think of the dead as existing either in heaven or hell, not existing here <laughs> with us. And, mm-hmm. and But at the same time, you know, there is, there is a desire that's often expressed to be buried back in your homeland or in your hometown, like we see uh, 
you know, in The Lonesome Dove. And, and I think it's, it's quite poetic, but it's, um, you know, it's, it, there are, there are so many layers of culture that we have to, we have to account for when we, when we interpret the, the <laughs> biblical literature and there's so much baggage that we, that all of us bring with us. Um, so, but that was a, a great point. Matt, that's, I mean, both of those are great. I just want to add one, one point myself because I don't want to feel left out. And then, <laughs> and then we'll, and then we'll wrap this up here. But, you know, when you look even at Jesus, so bridging, you know, into early quote unquote Christians, it, it's probably not without significance that Jesus is buried in Jerusalem and he creates a new covenant. And so it ties together all these issues that you've been talking about that also come from this Israelite Hebraic background in a way that I think probably most Christians wouldn't be familiar with. And, and there is a very real um, expression, perhaps, or understanding um, the, uh, through the actions of Jesus or the specific reasons of why he's doing what he does, where he does it, you know, that that's building on all of this. And so I just think that that's actually a, um, I don't know, I, I thought that that'd be an interesting parallel seeing seeing how he's buried there and the whole creation of a new covenant that he does with the whole last supper. Yeah. I guess you could say, I mean, again, tombs are important where you bury the dead, where you place the dead is, is very important. Even if the dead don't stay in there. as Right. Jesus. Amen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, um, you know, and to, to, to more to your point, Jesus is a figure who's from Galilee, who's born in Bethlehem, but he's buried in Jerusalem. And why is that? Probably because again, the, the gospel writers wanted to tie him to Jerusalem, the city of the temple, and we know that in the Byzantine period, this becomes a, this becomes a topic of, of, of discussion um, with regards to the location of the Holy Sepulchre versus the Temple Mount, which is left in ruins. So you know, it could be, it could be divisive. It could, but it was there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's not something I, I really considered in depth, um, in writing my book, but, uh, but yeah. Well, and you can also yeah. see in those stories as well. I mean, in, in terms of the, in terms of the early reflection in, in Christianity, why something like the emptying of Hades is an important part of that because, uh, it's connected with, you know, going down to the dead. And so it's connected regardless of where the tomb is, it's in Jerusalem and it makes these connections, but it's a connected idea that is itself the transitional point from the type of realities that uh, Matt and we have been talking about in the, in terms of the bronze, the iron age and the Persian period. And it's, it's not, you know, a, a once for all moment in terms of a, uh, a, a turn on the dime change. There's obviously ideas about resurrection much earlier than the, time of the new testament but it's all related to the same phenomenon and so it's 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 important that matt has done so much work on this um from a looking at the the iron age in particular but showing these long distance connections and so it's been really fun uh i think we're way (laughs) over uh but that's okay you know it's halloween uh so spectacular yeah yeah, thanks thanks for for joining us i enjoyed Uh, thank you for having me and you'll definitely have to come on again we have much much more we could we could talk about so thanks thanks for being with us thank you you've been listening to on scripts biblical world podcast if you enjoy this show 
please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.